Today's sermon text is Ruth chapter 4, 1 through 22. It can be found in the Bible rack, in the Bible on the rack in front of you on page 224. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witness this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witness. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Let's pray as we dive in this morning. Father, we um, come to you again, and we just ask specifically now for the ability to hear and to receive your word, and then from there to apply it, to have it worked out in our lives, that we would be conduits of truth um, as we leave here, that we would speak truth, and then we would live it out uh, to the effect that others around us would would come to know you. So uh, we pray all of that as we open your word this morning in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So folks, we've we've made it to the end um, or at least the beginning of the end. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, Lord willing, today we're going to close out the uh, the drama that is Ruth, uh, a drama. We'll close the curtain on Ruth, but but you can think about it. Ruth really opens the curtain to a much bigger story. As we'll see here uh, in redemptive history. Uh, if, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you are here. This is week four, so you've missed three. Uh, don't worry about that. Um, hopefully you won't feel lost. You can track those other sermons down uh, on the website and, and listen to those. We're just grateful that you're here. For those that have been here the entire time, I hope you've enjoyed this book as much as I have. Um, uh, it's just it's just been a real joy to dive into it. My thanks to David Burnett uh, for tackling chapter three last week uh, in God's sovereign timing. He had me out of town last week. So thank you for that. You did a great job. I was able to listen to that. Um, so let me help us reengage in the story and then I'll remind us of where we are in the story. I think it's key that we uh, make an attempt to connect with what we're looking at. Generally speaking, if we are Christians, if you are a Christian in this room, then we should want to lean into God's word Anytime God speaks, because God speaks through his word and he doesn't waste words. And so if we're his people, we should want to receive that. Uh, but at the same time, we should recognize that it's difficult at times, certain texts for them to be uh, for them to connect to us, for them to feel important to us. Um, a book like Ruth is in the Old Testament. It's about a few obscure characters uh, seems to be mainly about how two people meet and finally get married and live happily ever after, uh, so to speak. And you may say, well, it's a sweet and inspiring story, and that's great. And I thought it was fun, but I'm not sure what it really has to do with me and what I, I do with it. Much like people may enjoy a good rom-com, but it doesn't really have any effect on their lives. Well, most rom-coms are basically pointless and often bad, and Ruth is neither of those. Ruth ha- is pointed and actually really good. And so, and it exists to do much more than just inspire us. So hopefully, uh, we'll lean into it. One of the big ideas of, uh, in Ruth, something we'll hit again today is this idea of, of providence, of, of God's providence, which is sort of the story behind the story. Okay. So, uh, this kind of pulls us in why we need to engage because there's much more than just the story on the pages here. Uh, I gave you a definition of providence in the first sermon. I'll give it to you again. Uh, divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. Providence simply asserts that God is in control of all things. You might say that providence is a mix of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us later on, God works all things. Okay, ultimately all things work for good. Sometimes providence hurts, but providence is always and ultimately and finally good because it's being directed by a good God. And if you are familiar with the Bible, then you will see quite a contrast at times in how God's providence plays out. We've talked about this. If you know the book of Exodus, 
You might say that's a depiction of God's miraculous providence through extraordinary means. By contrast, Ruth is a picture of God's meticulous providence through very ordinary means. Ruth is very much a story for those that that wonder what God is, what, what is God up to? Like what is going on in the world and where is God? It's a it's a story that will help people that wonder where God is in the midst of difficulty. It's a story that will help people that are wondering whether God is worth living for. It is a story that will help people that wonder whether God actually works through ordinary lives and ordinary faithfulness or if it's just through extraordinary people and extraordinary faithfulness. In short, it's a story for everyone. There, there's sort of an avenue in for anybody, for wherever you are. Now remember, behind the love story we see on the surface, there's a much greater love story going on. Behind this tale of two people is ultimately a tale of redemption, as we've called it, a tale of God's redemption that finally comes through Jesus Christ. It's a tale of how God in Jesus brings people from despair to delight, from hurt to hope. Okay, this love story in the Old Testament is here to finally get us to Jesus in the New Testament. You can say with confidence, I can say with confidence that Ruth points to Jesus. And it doesn't just point to him, it helps us to better understand him. So it's not just like a sign saying Jesus is that way, it's a bit of a description as well that says Jesus is like this. So no matter where you are today... No matter what your circumstance is, whether believer or unbeliever, we all need the same thing. We need to be pointed to Jesus, maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time. And we need to better understand Jesus. And Ruth can help us with both of those. So welcome to the week four of the book of Ruth. Now that we're hopefully leaning back into the story, where are we in the story? Very quick recap. In terms of general context, we're in the time of the judges. Okay, the book starts that way, points to where we are in the time of the judges. Not going to go back there now, but all you got to do is flip back one book in your Bible, read about that. You'll be seriously depressed when you get done. To sum it up, it's not a good time. Judges is not a good time to live. What you have in Ruth is the camera. Okay, it's kind of big picture. Here's judges. The the camera is going to zoom down. You're going to come down on one family that's living in the context of this really disastrous, messy time. Okay, and this one family being led by a guy named Elimelech. Okay, and the story doesn't start well. There's a famine likely due to disobedience by God's people. We don't know that for sure, but there's a famine in God's land in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech takes his family and he flees. He goes, he leaves the promised land, the the land that God had led his people to. He leaves there and goes to what we'll call the land of compromise, a land called Moab. Not a good place for God's people to be. Things get worse. Elimelech dies. And then his sons marry Moabite uh, women, which would have been frowned upon. And then the two sons die. And so we're quickly left in the story with Naomi, okay, the mother-in-law, the wife of Elimelech, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Then God visits his people in Bethlehem. Naomi hears of this. There's now food, no more famine, and she decides we're going to go back. She's journeying back with the daughters-in-law and stops somewhere along the way and then tries to do some anti-evangelism, talk them out of coming. And Orpah listens, one of them named Orpah, Ruth decides not to listen and just we have one of the greatest speeches on commitments 
that we see in the Bible. And she commits both to Naomi and to Naomi's God and ventures on with her. Okay, so you have two widows at this point who are back in Bethlehem and they are poor and they are desperate. But there is an avenue. So we we find out about gleaning. We look at some Old Testament laws. Ruth is able to go out into some local fields and glean because God had set up an avenue for food to basically be left on the edges of the fields for the poor and the desperate. Just so happens or better said, she providentially happens on the field of a guy named Boaz. And as we know, as the story goes, Boaz shows incredible sacrificial kindness to both Ruth and Naomi. After this, Naomi educates Ruth on who Boaz is, hatches what we'll call an interesting plan to get Ruth and Boaz together, a plan which Ruth amazingly goes through with, a plan which amazingly Boaz succumbs to. I mean, you first hear the plan and you think no way and you think poor Ruth, but the plan works and you more or less end up with Ruth proposing to Boaz and Boaz accepting. But then you get a catch. You get a but at the end of that section there. Chapter three ends with a catch. It ends in suspense with Ruth and Naomi having to wait to figure out their fate. So you've got everyone rooting for Boaz and Ruth. Everyone getting excited. Everybody's just there's applause. There's excitement. Boaz has said yes. But then you find out there's another man. There's another potential guy and Boaz may not be the guy and the curtain closes on chapter three and you're just left wondering what happens. Well, you probably know what happens because you've either heard the story or read ahead. But let's pretend just for a moment like we're the first hearers of this. And I decided to read chapter three and take a break and you're just left like what happens. So if you can get in that mindset, let's get there. All right. So and uh, this is we, we've been talking about this in terms of of acts and scenes. And so we are now in act four. We've been looking at this like a drama and not so much like a book. Um, so we're about to open the curtain to act four, the final scene. And this act contains two scenes and then an epilogue. OK, two scenes and an epilogue. And I have worked this week to stretch my understanding of the theater here. And I've added an aside. Anybody know what that is? I'm not even sure I'm 100% clear. So if I mess it up or if I've just redefined it, then just go with me. It's basically where the where an actor in the play or a narrator steps aside and then talks to the audience alone and nobody else gets to hear it. Better for me, it's like the Zach Morris timeout. Okay, timeout. Everybody freezes and I'm going to step in and tell you so that that would be I think it's the same thing, actually. So I've inserted an aside on the topic of the kinsman redeemer. Okay, the redeemer. We're going to kind of hit on that for just a minute. So two scenes, an epilogue and an aside mixed in and then Lord willing, three uh, closing exhortations. All this will uh, hopefully be on the screens as we go. Scene number one, uh, which I'm calling suspense at the gate, suspense. At the gate. So we're not left in suspense long in terms of there's not a a long period of time between the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter uh, uh, four. Boaz is a man of action. So he takes action the next day, according to the text, uh, because uh, Naomi said tomorrow he's going to he's going to do something about about this. Uh, You can imagine that that Ruth probably has a sleepless night. Maybe no Naomi has a sleepless night as well. Just kind of waiting like what's going to happen. 
You read through chapter four, Boaz strikes you as a guy who kind of sat down, prayed, thought about his plan and slept like a baby because he's, he's pretty confident uh, as we see this play out. So Naomi has told Ruth that Boaz was one of their relatives, which made him something called a redeemer. And we'll get uh, more on that concept in a second with the aside. And that was true. He was a redeemer. He met the qualifications of what's known as a redeemer. So the plan was hatched, as we see, and uh, to get Ruth and, and Boaz together, and it works. But Boaz says there's a potential snag in the plan. There's another relative, another redeemer that's closer to Elimelech's family than Boaz is. And he says, I'm going to go handle this matter and just and see if this guy will redeem. I'm going to go handle the matter. And so that's the scene, him handling this matter. That's the scene you have in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. He goes immediately to the city gate. So this is what, I don't know, you know, you probably think, why, why, why go to the gates? That doesn't seem like a good spot. Well, that's where everybody would meet. That's where everybody would be going in and out of the city. That's also where meetings would happen, where business would happen. You might say civil court, as we see it here, would happen. Okay, sort of judicial proceedings would happen at the gate. There would likely be an area there where you could do something like this. And so they're at the gate and things get started off pretty quickly, wasting no time. Verse one, and behold, the Redeemer. The guy in question just so happens, again, to walk by based on the rest of the book. We know this is not a coincidence. Boaz summons the man to a little business. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Now notice, no name, just friend and redeemer. Boaz certainly knows his name. If Boaz knew there was a closer kinsman, he knew his name. The wording of friend here could actually be translated as, hey, so-and-so. And we'll we'll revisit that in a minute, but it's just nameless. Hey, so-and-so, come over here and sit down. So Boaz grabs the man, and then the text says he grabs ten elders of the city. So he's got a bit of a jury, or you may just say witnesses to a transaction. He's got a notary republic in our day, but it took ten of them to witness this transaction. And Boaz commences to tell the man about the need for someone in Elimelech's family to buy his property. So might be a little confused. We didn't get a lot of background on Elimelech's property, but in desperation, he probably sold it before he left to go to Moab. But you really didn't sell things in that day. You more or less leased them to use our terms. He, he kind of sold the rights of use to it. But eventually that would come back to him, Okay, either in a lot of years or one of his family members would buy it back. So Naomi needed someone in the family to buy it back and essentially buy it from her so that she could be cared for. Okay, this that act in and of itself was a matter of God's law. You can read about this in Leviticus 25. Get the details on that. If someone sold property due to poverty, one of their relatives had the right to redeem it, to buy it back. Again, we know the story, but those first hearing it are hoping at this point, this guy says, no, I don't want to buy the property. But then the first hearers are, are crushed. He, he says, yes. And really, you can't blame him for saying yes. The first tears would have said, man, he's going to say yes, because this is a good deal. It would have been a good business deal. He he's thinking, I'm going to get some more land that's going to produce more revenue. And there's really not much attached to it. I know that's Naomi, but that's just caring for a widow. That's not going to be that that big a deal. So a lot of positive with not much obligation. So he momentarily crushes everyone's hopes who's following the story. But Boaz has something up his sleeve. If you're watching the play, you can see Boaz grinning in the background like, "Okay, all right, you want to buy it? 
Let me tell you this. Not sure why he took this approach, by the way, but, but he did. The guy seems, says he wants to redeem it, and then Boaz has kind of a card he's been holding. He drops a little bomb here. Verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You can just imagine the ten elders took a deep breath at this point. Like, whoo, this just got, this got real. Here's the deal. Boaz is bringing to bear something else, something else known as the Leverite law or Leverite marriage. OK, we see this in Deuteronomy 25. So Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 25. You can go read those later. But there's really a catch to Deuteronomy 25. That law pertains to an unwed brother in law marrying a widowed sister in law. OK, as if I'm unwed and my my brother dies, he was he was wed and he dies and, and I'm responsible for taking care of his wife. So it was more specific than that. And it's not stated that either Boaz or Mr. So and so are brothers of Elimelech. They're just relatives. So what's happening here is Boaz is leaning into the spirit of the law, not necessarily following the letter of the law. And by the non-reaction of the elders and the reaction of this man, that wasn't out of bounds. Because you think the elders would have stepped up and said, oh, whoa, you're, you're kind of stretching that. He's not responsible for that. And the man might have just said, no, 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 I don't have to do that. So they, they, they would lean into the spirit of law and see just the next relative being able to do this. Notice here again that we see it emphasized. This is key to, to, to I think, why this man reacts this way. Notice that it's emphasized that Ruth is a Moabite. Okay, we've seen that over and over throughout this book, which means she's an outsider. She's from a despised people. And I think that certainly plays into this. And Boaz is seemingly using that in his favor. Now, we don't know if Mr. So-and-so is married or not, or if he's just looking out for his own interest, but he tucks tail and, and runs at this point. It's all yours, Boaz. You can have it. You can have the bitter mother-in-law and you can have the foreign daughter-in-law. That, that's yours. Land goes with it. Now, some people want to say that this man not being named is a sign of judgment, a sign of shame, uh, because he didn't lean into the spirit of the law. But I'm not really convinced of that. I'm not sure the text faults the kinsman for his reaction. I'm more convinced the text highlights Boaz for his. This text seems so much more about Boaz and his, sex, uh, his, his reaction and not so much about what Mr. So-and-so does. It's not a great look for the guy, but we'll, we'll give him a break. We won't heap judgment and shame on him because we don't know him. We don't know who he is, just some redeemer. So Boaz prevails and the audience goes wild. Okay, right there. Boaz is victorious. Everybody's happy. And then it's like story comes down a little bit. We get an interesting way of sealing the deal. Verse seven explains that was a custom when that, that as a custom one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other to make it official. I'm not sure about you. You could probably think of a better way to make a deal official, maybe a pen and a piece of paper. But this was, according to the text, custom. It said you take off your shoe. OK, the Redeemer took off his shoe because he would have. Seemingly walked on the land with that shoe, so I'm giving you the shoe, therefore the property is now yours. It doesn't really matter why, that, that's what they did. It's just a signal, that property is now yours. So, I heard David Burnett uh, say this in a certain way, uh, a different way about chapter 3 last week. Not everything in scripture is normative. Some things are just narrative. Meaning, 
what what we have here is just something being described to us, not something being prescribed for us. Okay, so you don't have to give anybody your shoe next time you sell your house or something like that. It's just I didn't think you would do that, but that's just a good example of how everything in Scripture is not normative. And you go, okay, all right, what do I do with the shoe thing? What do I do? I've never given somebody my shoe. You don't have to give anybody your shoe. Okay, just sign a contract and you're good. Then you have the elders. All right. They step in pronounced as witnesses in the case in the event someone contests it one day. Then in verses 11 through 12, you have what I would think, what I would call as a prophetic prayer. And it's and it, and it talks about not just the elders, but all these people at the gate. Apparently, this thing has drawn a crowd. OK, everybody's kind of huddled around like what what's going on? What was what, what's the little hearing about over here? And then you have this prophetic prayer coming from. The crowd, and I'm calling it that because it seems like they're praying better than they know in verses 11 and 12. And they are very much, I think the narrator is using their prayer to tip us off to what the end of the book contains. Because it's a prayer of blessing and it's a big one. May you be like Rachel and Leah. Do you know who came from late Rachel and Leah? The 12 tribes of Israel. May you be like the house of Perez. Now, there's a bit of a shady story there, but you know what you get through Perez? Judah. You know what comes from Judah? The Messiah. This crowd is wishing a destiny of prosperity and prominence akin to the greatest figures in redemptive history. And it's with this prayer of blessing that Boaz just exits the scene, exits the gate scene and prepares for the next one. And that's just kind of how it ends. But before the next scene begins, let's step aside and chase down one concept, one term here that's very prevalent. Okay, so the aside and and I want to look at this concept of the kinsman redeemer before we leave the scene at the gate. So there's a lot you could say about this, but I want to keep it somewhat uh, brief because we've covered some of this. We've sort of been building the case Throughout four weeks of who this kinsman redeemer is or what a kinsman redeemer is. But Boaz is depicted here as a kinsman redeemer. Okay, one word in the original language, two in the English. And this is where this book does more than just point us to Jesus. It also helps us to better understand Jesus. All right. So how would you describe what would a redeemer require? Okay, what must they have? At least three things. A redeemer must have a relationship, a redeemer must have the resources, and a redeemer must have the resolve or the willingness to redeem. Meaning they must be a relative, they must have the means, okay, maybe be wealthy, and they must be willing to redeem. Boaz has all three. He was a relative, he was obviously wealthy, and he he had the means, and he was willing. That last one is the only one it seems that the other redeemer did not have. He was not willing. You fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus is often regarded and viewed as the ultimate kinsman redeemer. This is where Boaz is a picture of Christ for us. Jesus is our brother, according to several texts. Hebrews 2.11 He had a relationship to be able to redeem. He had the resources to be able to redeem. He had the resources to pay the debt that we owed. Okay, that was owed for us to redeem us. There was a debt to be paid. He had the resources. He had the perfect sinless life in the place of ruined sinners. And he certainly had the resolve to redeem us. 
One author put it this way. He said, in Ruth, we see a beautiful and emotional picture of the needy petitioner, unable to rescue herself, requesting of the kinsman redeemer that he cover her with his protection, redeem her and make her his wife. In the same way, the Lord Jesus bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, made us his own beloved bride and blessed us for all generations. He is the true kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in faith. Here's the connection for all of us. We are all we all are or all were outsiders like Ruth in need of a family. Poor and destitute, at least spiritually, in need of protection, in need of restoration, in need of redemption. And Jesus steps on the scene and meets every need. What Boaz did for Ruth and what Ruth did for Naomi is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Now, if you are here or you are listening to this later and you don't know Jesus, then what Boaz did for Ruth and what Ruth did for Naomi is a picture of what Jesus is offering you. Rescue, redemption, family, hope, delight, fulfillment. Jesus has the relationship to redeem you. Jesus has the resources to redeem you. And Jesus has the resolve to redeem you. The question is, will you receive it? Will you receive that redemption? We pray for those that have. We, we, we pray that you would. If you're present today or listening to this later, it's because you needed to hear that. Remember, we believe in the providence of God. There are no accidents. I'd love to talk with anybody more after that. So just just track me down if you have questions. For now, let's end the aside, untime out or whatever it was that Zach Morris did, and we move on. Scene two, which I'm calling fulfillment in the home. Fulfillment in the home. So we move from the gate to what we'll call the family home. And I know it may be disappointing for some, but you do not have the elaborate description of the fairy tale wedding. You get one verse, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And I don't know if anybody went all in that one. You just you kind of wanted you wanted to know how it went as a dad of two daughters. I sort of wish that was prescriptive and not descriptive. I'd probably save a lot of money one day, but it's still descriptive. So weddings are fine. Uh, But boom, they're married. Just it. One verse. Then things escalate quickly and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. For those in the room that understand that verse, it means exactly what you think it means. But do take note of who gave her the ability to have a child. The Lord, the once barren Ruth now has a child. Remember, she was barren, could could not have kids. Then her husband dies. Now she is with child and it's from the Lord again, the providence of God at work. There are three actors, okay, three actors involved in this miracle, but only one of them is sovereign. And then, interesting, interestingly, Boaz and Ruth sort of fade away. They kind of fade to the background, and Naomi steps back center stage. According to verse 14, the women, seemingly the same women at the end of chapter 1, okay, that were wondering, what happened to Naomi? Is that even Naomi? Man, things must not have gone well. 
Those same women now are praising the Lord for how much he's blessed her. The once sweet Naomi who was turned bitter is now turned sweet again. The empty Naomi is now full. She's been refilled. And then you have this word redeemer again, but then it's used to describe the child, not Boaz. You see it come up again there in verse 14. But it's describing the child, not Boaz. This And what's going on there is the child is a realization of the redemption of Naomi. Naomi's course has been reversed. She's been redeemed. And the child is a picture that that reality has happened. And then Ruth may have faded out of the scene, but she's given some high praise by these ladies. The women in talking to Naomi say that Ruth is better than seven sons. You see that in verse 15, better than seven sons. So a son was desired in that day to carry on the family line and for a lot of other reasons. And Ruth is compared to seven of them. Seven is the perfect number in Scripture. How about that for a daughter-in-law? Anybody here had their mother-in-law say you were better than seven sons? I know a lot of you have had your mother-in-law say you're better than my son, but seven sons, that would be, that would elevate you above, above that. So we then see that Naomi becomes the nurse for the child. To put that in context, she's the live-in mother-in-law that's also serving as the nanny. So the narrator's really just trying to paint this deep picture of the restoration of Naomi as if she's been given a child herself. She's been given something better, right? Grandparents in the room, she's been given a grandchild, right? And for whatever reason, the women of the town get to name the kid. And we get little Obed, okay, Obed, whose name means servant or servant of God. Seems like a a great name to yell at a kid, Obed. And finally, we see that Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And at that point, the original audience takes a deep breath. They hear for the first time that Ruth and Boaz are the great grandparents of King David. Just imagine like, how they took that. We'll get more on that in just a second. For now, we just need to make sure we see what the narrator's doing as he's closing out this section before he kind of gets to that genealogy at the end. Okay, There's a point being made through Naomi. We see God at work in the bitter setbacks of Naomi's life. When she lost her husband and her sons, God gave her Ruth. When she could think of no kinsman to rescue and raise up offering, God provided Boaz. When she could think of no one, when she had no one to carry on the family line, God gave her Obed. God restored Naomi. God brought her from despair to delight, from hopeless to hopeful, from empty to full. This last scene is one of fulfillment. The home is full for Naomi and Ruth now. I don't want to miss the point the author is making there from chapter one to here and what has happened in the life of Naomi. And we, we sort of left Ruth behind, but but note this before we move on. Note this before we move on about Ruth. Ruth has been called a Moabite over and over and over a foreigner. She calls herself a servant or a slave. So we come from all of that, from a Moabite, a foreigner, a slave, a servant. And now in this final scene, she's called a wife. And she becomes a mother. Fulfillment seems light. Like there's a better word, I think, in English. But 
fulfillment is it's just incredible what Naomi and Ruth, you could just imagine if you could try to put yourself in their shoes from bitter to sweet, from empty to full. So, all right, the story's not quite over. Scene two fades, but before we get to the end, we have an epilogue, an epilogue, what I'm calling hope for the future. And I know we've been looking at this like a play, but the epilogue here is more akin to the uh, credits that roll at the end of a movie. And if you're into superhero movies, there's they're, just fascination, this obsession with putting this in credit scene that makes you stick around for 20 more minutes and to see what that scene is. And that scene always sort of foreshadows or continues the story and kind of goes, oh, it's not over. Oh, here's what's coming next. And we don't really have an in credit scene. It's more like the end credits are pointing to the continuation of the story. And I think if we're honest, having such a great story in with a genealogy is, is a bit of a letdown. But this is an impressive genealogy. Okay? So, so don't, don't just end at verse 17. Verses 18 through 22 are, are actually really, really good. Uh, again, most of us know the story. We know the connections here. So it may not land on us like it would the original audience. Uh, but, But they couldn't fully grasp it like we can grasp what's going on in this genealogy. But when verse 17 says, Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And then when the next verses go back several generations and then connect to David through Boaz, all of a sudden the reader realizes there is a lot more going on here. This is so much more than just a story about a couple that made it in the time of the judges. God was, the reader's going, God was not just working out the circumstances of one family. He was preparing for the coming of the greatest king that Israel would ever have. And beyond that, the name of David would also carry with it the hope of the Messiah. And the hope of a new age of peace, of righteousness, and so much more. If you're the original reader, and really more so us, if you're reading this genealogy, that's what you hear. The ending of such a great story may fall flat on us. But as one author said, well, this simple little story opens like a stream into a great river of hope. It's like you found a canal that led to the ocean and you thought you were on something until you got to the end. And you just said, wow. This book and this genealogy demonstrates that even in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line is preserved and not by the heroics of some king or some judge, but by the good hand of a sovereign God. These characters know nothing of the long range fruit of their faithfulness. But the narrator does, and he wants his audience to know. He wants them to know that in the providence of God, the kindness of these characters has laid the groundwork for the history of salvation that will extend to the end of the ages. The story opens with the statement, in the days the judges ruled. You you can't get much more depressing than that statement. The story now closes with a picture of how David will one day rule which will signal an even greater rule to come. Verse 22 is not the end of the story. It's just the continuation of a much bigger one. This story is not simply about blessings in the present, but much more so about hope for the future. This genealogy, it just overflows with hope. If only Ruth and Boaz and Naomi knew what was coming. 
If only these ordinary people who walk through extraordinary difficulty, if only they knew how God used their abundant kindness, not just for the sake of God's Old Testament people, but ultimately for the sake of all peoples, for your sake, for my sake. We've looked at this before in this series, but this genealogy is basically inserted in the book of Matthew and Matthew chapter one in his genealogy. And if you know the Bible at all, you know how that genealogy ends. It ends with Jesus Christ. The story of a destitute widowed Moabite is used by God to bring about the birth of another son, one that was to be called Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. One pastor put it well, he said, this simple story of struggle and restoration is a bright, radiant thread woven by God into the grand fabric of redemption. Mr. So-and-so will be forgotten, but Ruth and Boaz, their names are forever linked to Jesus Christ. How does God get his people out of the mess that is judges? How does God ultimately rescue his people out of disaster and suffering and sin? How does God get from judges to King David to the Messiah, Jesus Christ? In part, he gets there through the faithfulness and kindness of a couple named Ruth and Boaz. Just when you think the curtain is going to close on the story, you actually realize the curtain is not open enough to the bigger story that is happening. And then the journey ends for now. But if you're reading it, you're left longing for more. Let's close out this way. Let me attempt to close this way. Three exhortations. Okay. So many directions we could go for this. It's hard to, you know, you kind of get in the movies. Like, how do you, how do you end a movie? Like, how do you end an epic love story? It's really difficult. Hard to end a sermon on an epic love story. The Lord ended with a genealogy. I should have just read it and walked off. But we'll go three exhortations. All right. You could do a whole. I mean, you could you could go so many directions with application of this. You could do a whole sermon on godly manhood just by looking at Boaz. All right. Same for Ruth. Proverbs 31 woman. You go a lot of different ways. So we'll go big picture. Kind of bring together the entire book. Nothing earth shattering here, but certainly. Nothing earth-shattering in terms of newness, but earth-shattering in terms of depth and importance. And I'm really just pulling in some of what we looked at in the first uh, sermon, because just going to close how it started. Some of that was big picture as well. So exhortation number one, low-hanging fruit here, trust God's providence. Trust God's providence. It's not a throwaway. Like Trust God's providence. Ruth gives us a clear picture of God's meticulous work in the lives of his people. I heard uh, John Piper say one of the main lessons of this book. He says, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. I don't know if that's the main lesson of the book, but that's a lesson of the book. It's a great lesson of the book. I heard an illustration that the life of the godly is not an interstate. Okay, you get on the interstate, you kind of go straight, you go really fast and it's pretty smooth. It's not that bumpy. The life of the godly is not like that. Life of the godly is uh, a winding road through the mountains. Okay, you ever been to Blue Ridge? You ever been out to Colorado? Wrong turns, rock sides, slippery slopes. At times, it, it's really hard. Seems like you're going nowhere. The book of Ruth is, is like a sign on that road that says you are headed in the right direction. Here's how another pastor put it. He said, even when we may not understand... We may wonder why. 
We may wonder how things are ever going to be resolved. It may look in your life like the end of Ruth 1. Like there's little hope on the horizon. But know this. In every setback we face, God is plotting for the good of his people. Even in our pain, God is plotting for our good. History is... Not, it seems like it is, but it's not the collection of one wretched thing after another. History is headed somewhere because it is guided by someone. And don't forget this aspect in God's providence portrayed in Ruth. God uses the faithfulness of ordinary people to accomplish great things. It may not be things you see in your life, but never discount what God will do and has done through ordinary people being ordinarily faithful to his word. Some of the most, and, 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 and remember this, some of the, or know this, some of the most Im, impactful things, important things that may come from your life may not happen in your life while you were here. How many, how many of you know, if, if, if think right now of a, a renowned pastor or missionary, people that were used to just seemingly alter the course of things in a context or whatever. How many of their parents do you know? Or have ever heard of. Some of them maybe. But a lot of them you don't. There's a lot of faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. Between, behind some extraordinary people. How many credible, incredible things have happened. Because of the faithful groundwork laid generations before. Trust God providence. Whether we're walking through difficulty. Or simply trying to be faithful. Know that God is as Paul said. Working all things for good. Second exhortation. Number two, extend God's kindness, extend God's kindness. I said in an earlier sermon that kindness is a major theme in this book. God's kindness is ultimately at work, but we see God's kindness through Ruth and Boaz in how kind Ruth is to Naomi and how kind Boaz is to Ruth. God's kindness works through people. It's demonstrated through people. So think about it. It's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. It's God's kindness through us that brings others to repentance. It's God's kindness to us that our needs are met. It's God's kindness through us that others' needs are met. It's God's kindness to us that we receive mercy and grace and compassion and patience and so many other things. And it's God's kindness through us that others are shown love and grace and mercy and compassion. The book of Ruth doesn't just show us how God sovereignly provides for his people. It shows us the means through which God passionately pursues all peoples. Don't forget what the narrator does not want us to forget. Ruth is an outsider. And now she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth, a Moabite woman grafted into the family of God. Okay, you should... You should just hear the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through you. In Ruth and in Boaz, we have a picture of what it looks like to exercise neighbor love. Remember, we're supposed to love God, love neighbor. We're told to love neighbors you love yourself. Who falls in that category? Who's my neighbor? Basically everyone. But don't miss how it's seemingly, it's the seemingly unlovable that are shown kindness in this story. Who receives the most kindness here? A bitter old widow and a foreign outcast from a pagan people. 
So we ask the question, do the bitter and despised and lonely and vulnerable and outcast and unreached of the world, are they receiving God's kindness through us? Is kindness, as it's shown here, a mark of this church? Is it a mark of us as Christians? Is there evidence Is there evidence of kindness to those that may not be receiving kindness from others? Are we kind people? And is there any measurement of its effect on others? Trust God's providence, extend God's kindness, and finally, believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. So, there's a lot that Ruth can teach us. But... It's one of the many areas where we are taught that God keeps promises. So think about it. Why did God bring about the redemption of Ruth and Naomi? Why did Boaz do what he did? Why was Obed born? Why was David eventually born? Why was Jesus eventually born? In part, because God keeps promises. God made a promise to Abraham. God made promises to his people. God made a promise to David and so on. God promised a king, a Messiah and the nations. God promised provision and redemption. The book of Ruth is part of one of the many is is, is one of the many assurances that God does what he says. One of the many that we have. God says he will provide. So he provides. He provides a family for Ruth. He provides a redeemer for Naomi. He provides a king for Israel. And he ultimately provides a Messiah for the world. You can walk away from Ruth knowing and believing and holding on to a lot of things. You can certainly walk away knowing and believing that if God says it, it's true. And it's coming true. I've said this, I think, at each sermon that... I don't know where all of you are. I don't know how it's going for all of you. Some of you, it's not going well. For others, it's going okay. Some are rejoicing, some suffering, some believing, some doubting. Some some are strong right now. Some are weak. Some are in between. All sorts of circumstances represented across this room. Here's what you need to hear in this final exhortation. When God is writing your story, it ends well. The current chapter may hurt, but the final one is really, really good. In Jesus, if you know Jesus, the final chapter is fantastic. Even if the current chapter, you just want to close it and walk away from the book. You cannot wait to read the last one. Here's what I want to do. Close a little bit different. I want to invite David. You guys go ahead and come back up. So those that were leading us, go ahead and come back up. I want to take a moment. And I want to read to us some of the promises that God has made to us. And, and then we're going to close with a song that affirms why these promises will come true. So why we can bank our lives on this. So you, you close your Bibles if you want to. just want you to listen. All right. So I don't know where you are. But I know these are true. I don't know where you are, but I know these are true. And we're going to sing about why these are true. So just just receive these. These are not from Corey. These are from the Lord. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever 
believes in him should not perish, will have eternal life. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:38 for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Revelation 3:5 the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And we can do this for hours, but we'll finish with this one. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Why can we say with confidence why can we believe those promises with confidence? Because, because Ruth fathered Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David, who eventually led to Joseph, who fathered another son, as we read earlier, one who was to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We can say these promises with confidence because Jesus has a relationship with us. He has the resources to redeem us and he has the resolve to go through it to save us. We can say these promises and so many more with confidence because Jesus paid the full price of our redemption. If you know Jesus, you can lean on these promises because he paid it all. Let's sing that now and lean into these.